Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Northminster Church. Whether you're joining us online or in person, we are glad you have taken time to be with us today. If you're visiting this morning, I want to say a special word of welcome and hope that you will join us in all the aspects of our worship service, including communion. If you have questions about how we do that here at Northminster, there are instructions in your order of worship, uh, and I hope that you will uh, join us at God's table this morning. We would also appreciate it if you would uh, fill out the uh, attendance registry at the end of your row and pass that down just so we have a record of who is here with us this morning. And as we begin our time together, I want to remind you to continue to be in prayer for all those on our prayer list and point out a couple of things in your order of worship this morning. The first is that you will see under uh, sharing Holy Communion, there is a note to see insert for the prayer. You can disregard that. We will use the uh, regular, feels like a strange word, regular Lord's Prayer that we all know. Um, I also uh, want to make sure you pay attention to the hymns that we are singing this morning, especially the middle hymn, if that is not one that you know well. Again, listen well to the choir, they will lead us through that. All right, isn't it a joy to be here on a day with some sun? I don't want to say too much about the weather, lest I jinx it, uh, but I feel less of a need to go out and collect wood for an ark uh, this morning. And with that in mind, with the beauty of this morning around us, let's take a deep breath together. We take these deep breaths, and we do it at this point in the service to give our minds and our hearts a chance to catch up with our bodies. So take a deep breath. As you breathe in, breathe in the calm, breathe in the joy of this good place. As you breathe out, breathe out your to-do list, breathe out the homework that you might still need to do, breathe out those things that you carried in with you this morning that are distracting. Breathe in again, know that you are loved by our creator just as you are, and then if you would, please join me in our call to worship. Come. Take off your shoes. Come love your neighbor and do good to all around you. Come and respect the planet. Love all that God gives us.
reading from Romans chapter 12. Love others well and don't hide behind a mask. Love authentically. Despise evil. Pursue what is good as if your life depends on it. Live in true devotion to one another, loving each other as sisters and brothers. Be first to honor others by putting them first. Do not slack in your faithfulness and hard work. Let your spirit be on fire, bubbling up and boiling over as you serve the Lord. Do not forget to rejoice, for hope is always around the corner. Hold up through the hard times that are coming and devote yourselves to prayer. Share what you have with the saints so they lack nothing. Take every opportunity to open your life and home to others. If people mistreat or malign you, bless them. Always speak blessings, not curses. If some have cause to celebrate, join in the celebration. And if others are weeping, join in that as well. Work toward unity and live in harmony with one another. Avoid thinking you're better than others or wiser than the rest. Instead, embrace common people and ordinary tasks. Do not retaliate with evil regardless of the evil brought against you. Try to do what is good and right and honorable as agreed upon by all people. If it is within your power, make peace with all people. Again, my loved ones, do not seek revenge. Instead, allow God's wrath to make sure justice is served. Turn it over to him. For the scriptures say, revenge is mine. I will settle all scores. But consider this bit of wisdom. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Because if you treat him kindly, it will be like heaping hot coals on top of his head. Never let evil get the best of you. Instead, overpower evil with the good. Wisdom for the treatment of all people. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in love you created us and in love you sustain us day after day. So it is with confidence that we bring our prayers to you, knowing that you hear us and will respond. We pray for the world around us, for the many who continue to suffer and call out for help, for those without enough to eat in Cuba, our friends, and elsewhere around the world for those caught up in violence and political uprisings in Ukraine, for those worried about flooding in our own community, for those desperate to find work to support their families. Gracious God, hear our prayer, and in your love, answer. We pray also for families and friends who are suffering, those struggling physically or emotionally, those learning to live with mental illness, those facing challenges at home or at work, those grieving the death of a loved one. Gracious God, hear our prayer, and in your love, answer. God, you have called us to pray for our enemies, to bless rather than curse those who deliberately seek to harm us. We bring their names before you now, those who have hurt us physically 
or emotionally those who have taken from us or cheated us out of what was rightfully ours, those who have spread hurtful rumors about us or even turned our friends against us. We ask you to bless them. Open our hearts so that we may see them as you see them and be able to respond to them with your love. Gracious God, hear our prayer and in your love, answer. We pray for your church around the world, that it would be a living demonstration of your coming kingdom, offering hospitality to all, ready to help in times of need, showing love to friends and enemies alike, seeking to live in peace with all people. Gracious God, hear our prayer, and in your love, answer. God, we praise you for your faithful love and for the mercy you have shown toward us. Open our eyes to recognize your presence in our lives. Give us grace to hear your call and courage to follow without hesitation, knowing that your way leads to life. In the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, amen. from Exodus chapter 3. Now one day when Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, 
the priest of Midian, he guided the flock far away from its usual pastures to the other side of the desert and came to a place known as Oreb, where the mountain of God stood. There the special messenger of the Eternal appeared to Moses in a fiery blaze from within the bush. Moses looked again at the bush as it blazed, but to his amazement, the bush did not burn up in flames. Moses thought to himself, why is this bush not burning up? I need to move a little closer to get a better look at this amazing sight. When the Eternal One saw Moses approach the burning bush to observe it more closely, he called out to him, from within the bush. Moses, Moses. Moses answered, I'm right here. <laughs> the eternal one continued, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals and stand barefoot on the ground in my presence, for this ground is holy ground. I am the true God, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A feeling of dread and awe rushed over Moses. He hid his face because he was afraid he might catch a glimpse of the true God. The Eternal One said, I have seen how my people in Egypt are being mistreated. I have heard their groaning when the slave drivers torment and harass them, for I know well their suffering. I have come to rescue them from the oppression of the Egyptians, to lead them from that land where they are slaves, and to give them a good land, a wide open space flowing with milk and honey. The land is currently inhabited by Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The plea of Israel's children has come before me, and I have observed the, the cruel treatment they have suffered by Egyptian hands. So go. I'm sending you back to Egypt as my messenger to the Pharaoh. I want you to gather my people, the children of Israel, and bring them out of Egypt. Moses responded to God, who am I to confront Pharaoh and lead Israel's children out of Egypt? And God answered, Do not fear, Moses. I will be with you every step of the way, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who has sent you. After you have led them out of Egypt, you will return to this mountain and worship God. Moses said, Let's say I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your fathers has sent me to rescue you. And then they reply, What is his name? What should I tell them then? The Eternal One responded, I am who I am. This is what you should tell the people of Israel. I am has sent me to rescue you. This is what you are to tell Israel's people. The Eternal, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is the one who has sent me to you. This is my name forevermore. And this is the name by which all future generations shall remember me. A story of holy ground and the divine name. Before I begin, let me say, Preston and James, my goodness. <laughs> Those voices are gorgeous. Thank you so much. Y'all make sure and thank them and all of our choral scholars for being here every week. Now let's pray together. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And may we hear a word from you today. Amen. Do you know where your name comes from? Were you named after a relative or maybe a family friend? 
The latter is how my mother ended up with the very unique middle name Jaquise, which she has always hated. Maybe your parents took an entertainment-based approach, like a friend of mine in high school, her middle name was Aurora, because her mother loved Disney movies. Or Lily, she played the bassoon in the high school band with me. Her legal first name was Baby Girl, because her parents immigrated right before she was born from Asia, and they were still learning English. I am named after my aunt, Jill, who some of you met when she was here. She's my mom's younger sister. And my paternal grandmother, Mary. I will always be grateful my parents didn't feel the need to use my grandmother's middle name. It was Iola. And she also hated it. Uh, most of you are probably aware Eric and I lost a child back in 2021. Um, but when we were coming up with names, the boy's name was really easy. We're going to name a boy after his grandfather. The girl's name proved to be quite a bit harder. We could not agree. Uh, all the names I liked, he didn't really care for. We eventually landed on Tegan as a first name because it was familiar enough without being very common. And we also uh, chose Allison as a middle name for a friend of ours who passed away way too suddenly in her 40s from a heart attack. Now, speaking of more vintage names, the kinds that I like best, they've had something of a resurgence lately. You might have noticed this. Names like Hattie and Ada and Minnie are cropping up more often. Names for boys like Edmund and Ollie and even the odd Thaddeus. I've seen that one around and about. My best friend named her oldest daughter Iris, and two seminary friends have twin girls named Adeline and Dorothy. Now, my Texas friends, and I don't know what this is about, but they prefer, prefer more rustic names, let's call them, like Gunner and Colton and Gage. <laughs> and then there are those folks who use those I-E-E-E-Y names for girls, those double, double vowels at the end, uh, like Kylie and Bailey and Paisley. Those are pretty popular. Then there are the historic names, such as Alexander the Great, that's all one name, Rodriguez. Alexander the Great Rodriguez uh, was a student a friend of mine had when she was student teaching. He was a first grader. And then my mom had a Jesse James for speech therapy several years ago. She said he definitely lived up to his name. <laughs> In fact, if you've never done this, asking teachers about the names that they've had, the really interesting ones, is some of the most fun you can have. So I encourage you to ask the teachers in your life, what are some of the interesting names you've had? It, it will be entertaining, I promise. According to a study done in 2015 by the New York Times, the number of women keeping their maiden names after marriage is on the rise after declining a bit in the 80s and 90s. And we're living at a time in which the names we call ourselves and others are scrutinized in such a way that they have never been scrutinized before. Most of this laser focus is helpful as it pushes us to evolve our language and our awareness of what others want to be called. It puts the onus on us to respect people's names and to use them. It also requires those of us in the majority, specifically those of us who are straight, white, and cisgender, to think outside our bubble. But such magnification has also given rise to those of us in the majority too often throwing up our hands in frustration. There are too many new terms and words for me to learn. How am I supposed to keep up? 
with everyone's pronouns, even when they consistently list them for me in their email signature. And it's not grammatically correct to call someone they. I can't possibly do that. I'll just call them what I'm most comfortable saying, which of course is not helpful. And then we've all heard the refrains of, well, back in my day, and you know after that point it's not gonna go well. <laughs> but as this congregation well knows, names matter. What we call ourselves, how we identify, and what we ask others to call us matters. But why? Why are we so interested in names? Where does our need to be, as one of my seminary professors like to say, that the need to name things, where does that come from? And how did we develop the ability to define each other with a single word, as in she's a female pastor, or they're those kind of Baptists? I'm convinced it's due to our discomfort with mystery and our need for rationality. And don't get me wrong, most of the time, the majority of the time, using the correct name for someone or something is vitally important. But when it comes to scripture, the same rules don't necessarily apply. After all, part of the reason people struggle with scripture is because so little of it is scientifically possible or historically provable. Even those who value the text without taking it seriously, which I think is most of us in this room, we struggle for language about why these stories matter if we don't necessarily believe they happen the way they're written down. Even having grown up in church, having a seminary education and now a decade of ministerial experience, I can count on probably one hand the things I know for certain about Jesus, the Bible, and what it means to be a Christian. One of those is that when someone, particularly a pastor, tells you they know for sure how God feels about X, Y, or Z, you need to take whatever comes out of their mouth next with a huge grain of caution. And strutting confidently into this mess and confusion is this morning's story. Into our need for certainty in the use of correct names for things and our frustration over having to learn so much new language while also steering clear of absolutes about God is this little patch of holy ground. We find ourselves in this beautiful, complex, impossible story of God speaking to Moses from a burning bush. Standing barefoot before a bush that is on fire without being consumed, with grit between his toes and the heat of the flame tickling his face, Moses is commanded by God to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, he makes several attempts to be relieved from this massive task, at one point saying to God, suppose I go to the Israelites, and I tell them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what's his name? Then what should I tell them? What Moses is really asking is, of all the deities out there, which one are you? To which God's response in Hebrew is Aye Asher Aye. Aye Asher Aye. Now, rather than being a clear moniker like Zeus or Baal, which we find elsewhere in the Bible, this answer remains mysterious to this day. 
because it can be translated either as I am what I am or I will be what I will be, which as professor and writer Amy Jill Levine says means, what that means is that this is a God of being, a God of presence, a God of future orientation, a God who takes whatever form God wants to take. To this day, we still don't know exactly what this name sounds like when it's spoken aloud, or even exactly how it's written, in part because Jewish tradition holds, and you probably know this, that the name of God is not spoken. It's become, but it's become universally accepted in academic circles to use something called the tetragrammaton. Now, this is your seminary word for the day. So let me explain. The tetragrammaton is Greek for four letters, and it refers to the consonants yod, he, vav, he, or in English, you've probably seen this written down, Yahweh, which is the capital Y, capital H, capital W, capital H. Yod, he, vav, he in the Hebrew. Now, despite our transliteration of that into Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, there are not any vowels in this word because biblical Hebrew often wasn't written with vowels. Often they would go back and add that in later. And if you look at Hebrew, if you see little dots around it, those are the vowels. The vowels, it's called um, dotting vowels. So it's important to keep in mind, no matter how common the word Yahweh has become, it's common in Christian worship. It is not a word that our Jewish brothers and sisters use. In fact, when the Tetragrammaton comes up in a prayer book or a reading, Jew Jewish folks will sometimes substitute the word Adonai, which means Lord, my Lord, or in very orthodox circles, the word Hashem, you might have heard that one before, meaning the name. Those two are often substituted. These are linguistic gymnastics, right? May seem silly to us, especially since scholars are only making their very best guess when it even comes to the name Yahweh. But it's important to understand, again, as Amy Jill Levine explains, that this means not only is the tetragrammaton a sacred symbol when written down, but even the pronunciation is so sacred in the Jewish context that one needs a circumlocation and a circumlocation for the circumlocation. So you need a workaround and then another workaround for the original workaround. You following me there? Al's shaking his head at me. We'll talk after. <laughs> as far as the linguistic roots of Yahweh, there are several possibilities. The first is that Yahweh comes from the root to fall as if rain falling down. A second suggestion is that Yahweh comes from the root meaning to blow, as in punching someone, but also to blow up like a storm or the wind blows. It's a connection with nature. The most commonly held view, though, is that Yahweh comes from the linguistic root to be or to become. With this root comes the sense that Yahweh is always present, always active. Yahweh has a future orientation as someone who creates who moves history, who makes history happen. This, this final explanation also fits the Greek, ego ami, which is translated as I am. And as you'll remember, that is how Jesus refers to himself throughout the Gospel of John. 
Now, let me pause at this point to answer a few questions some of you might have. Yes, there are scholars who spend their entire careers studying the linguistics of a name no one is even sure how to say, their entire careers. Yes, I have explained this from roughly 30,000 feet. There is quite a bit more nuance to this conversation that's important. And yes, this is the kind of information you learn in seminary that is promptly replaced when you get out and actually do ministry because operating in a classroom and operating in a church are two really different things. And no, I don't think the point of this story is that we don't know God because we don't really know how God's name is pronounced. The point of this story, and therefore the good news this morning, is that no matter how we pronounce it, we have been given God's name. God has shared a piece of herself with us and has trusted us to know her intimately and personally. And while its origins and history are slippery, just as Moses is given God's name so that he and the Hebrew people might have a claim on it, we have that same claim. Just as Moses and the Hebrews find a new identity in this Yahweh who has seen their misery and heard their cries, we find our identity in the God who knows and sees all of us. Dr. Amy Merrill Willis points out that as much as Moses' identity emerges from his own past, so God's actions in the present emerge from God's past commitments to the ancestors. The God of the Exodus is a God who remains faithful. Now, as we've seen with Sarah and Jacob these past few weeks, God is constant. Sometimes unpredictable, rarely functioning on any discernible timetable of ours, often beyond understanding to the point of frustration, God is nevertheless constant. God is faithful. God will be with Moses and the Hebrews just as God will be with us no matter what wilderness we wander through. To be. What more powerful basis for God's name could possibly exist? Being is at the root of all things. Being is ineffable and omnipotent. Being is tangible and active. Being is how we show our love and support. Our God has always been and always will be. Holy, mystery, and personal Lord and Savior all wrapped up in one dangerous, loving, unknowable, intimate, relational God. Take off your shoes, my friends, for this is holy ground.
As we gather this morning at this communion table, we remember that this is not my table. This is not your table. This is not Northminster's table. This is God's table. And at this table, everyone is welcome. Everyone has a place. There is always more room at which to pull up a chair. So as we honor the table fellowship of Christ this morning, we honor creator and creation. Father, Son, and Spirit dance as one here, and so may it always be. And now if you would, please join me in the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. On that night so long ago, when Jesus was in the upper room at dinner with his friends, he gave us a promise of life that does not go away with death. On that night, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup, he filled it with wine, And he gave it to them, saying, Drink this. This is the cup of the new covenant, my poured out life. And whenever you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, remember me until I come again. Thank you. 